we all go through these moments where we hit these milestones, be it a, an anniversary, a birthday, an accomplishment, a promotion, retirement. We have these moments in life where we seek to recognize people based on certain things that are taking place in their life. And, and I want to kind of explore that a little bit further, the value of recognition, because a lot of times when we go through this, you kind of have this spectrum. The, the, the more negative aspect to it is a failure to recognize people. And, and the more meaningful one is what we've tried to do here in just this moment, uh, which was at least to acknowledge John, obviously with a chance to celebrate him later in April more thoroughly and more intentionally, but that when you do that, it really conveys that this person means something, you, you acknowledge their, their value, their worth. And so you kind of have this, this spectrum. And, and that's an important thing for us to keep in mind because of what it communicates. And, and we try to avoid falling on the side of failing to recognize people. And, and, and you can take the milestones out of it, right? Like if we just think about recognition at its core and, and you get beyond milestones of birthdays, anniversaries, Ultimately, what we're saying is we're, we're just trying to acknowledge the existence of someone, right? And a, a relationship, an understanding of who they are. And when we fail to do that, it, it gives a pretty unfortunate impression. In fact, just this weekend, uh, I kind of went through a similar experience in this regard in the sense that uh, my family and, and myself, we went up to Oklahoma to celebrate my brother-in-law's 40th birthday. And that's where my family still is today. They, they got to sleep in, okay? Good for them. Um, but, but we were up there celebrating my brother-in-law's 40th birthday and he had invited Jennifer and me over to his house on Friday night, along with a couple other friends of theirs. And we were going to do a kind of a kid-free celebration. So we, we show up, we drop the kids off over at the grandparents' house. We drive over, uh, to David's. And as we're going, I asked Jennifer, I'm like, okay, so do I know any of these other people that are going to be there? And she said, well, I don't know if you do, but I do. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, that's not incredibly helpful for me. Uh, but I appreciate that commentary. But she elaborated. She said, but you've seen them. Like, they've been at some of these family gatherings, you know, that we've had in the past. So you, you could probably recognize them. So we walk in, and sure enough, I see these two other couples, and, and the guys in particular, like, they look familiar. And I find myself in that unfortunate situation where surely many of you have been before, where you recognize the face, but you don't know their name, Right? You've been in that situation before, show of hands, if you've been there before. And, and so you know that when you're in that moment, you're giving yourself a choice. Like, I can approach this one of two ways. One is, is just to pretend like I don't know you and, and reintroduce myself and just go ahead and, and acknowledge that I don't know who you are, give you my name, and hopefully get yours. Now, the risk in doing this is that if you have met them before, they're going to realize that you don't really remember anything about it. And so you kind of have to take that risk. The other option, option B, is that you pretend like you know them and you give them that very generic greeting of, hey, man, how are you doing? How are y'all, right? And you just kind of hope that somewhere along the way in the conversation you pick up their name. And so guess which option I went with? I went with option A, okay? And, and the risk with option B is that if you haven't ever met them before and you act like you do know them, then that also is equally concerning for them. So I go in there and I introduce myself to them and I kind of knew right off the bat that that might have been a mistake because the response was, you know, hi, I'm Jeremiah. Yeah, I'm Jonathan, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, man, I probably have met this guy before, but I didn't think too much of it. It wasn't until I actually left uh, the party on Friday that I realized not only had I met them, but... We had spent an entire evening one time up there playing washers, which is the equivalent of like cornhole 
And like we had played several games against each other. And so I realized that I didn't exactly leave the best impression by failing to remember their names. And that's the failure of recognition is that you get in this moment where all of a sudden you're communicating to this person, whatever context we've shared, whatever relationship we've had, I've forgotten it. And as a result, it kind of devalues that relationship. But on the other end of the spectrum, when we do put the effort in towards recognition, it it really communicates value. Let let me give you an example on this end of the spectrum. Sheldon Yellen, we got a picture of old Sheldon here today. He is the CEO of an organization called uh, Belfour Holdings, which is a crisis response and property restoration company. And I was reading this article about Sheldon a couple of, uh, just a couple days ago, and it was actually written back in 2017. And he was featured in Forbes uh, because of this practice of writing handwritten birthday notes for his employees. I've confessed to you all before, that's not a great habit of mine. I struggle with the whole handwritten note thing. Um, but I think we can all acknowledge that's a pretty standard, common gesture to acknowledge somebody's milestone of a birthday. But why was he featured in Forbes magazine for doing something that's somewhat standard? The reason he was featured is because his organization has 7,400 employees, and every single one of them get a handwritten birthday note. If you do the math, which I didn't, but I I took the article's word for it, that equates to 37 handwritten birthday notes a day, right? That's what he's doing in some capacity. Essentially, he has created a lifestyle of, of acknowledging and recognizing others, right? And and in so doing, it demonstrates thoughtfulness. It demonstrates intentionality because he knows their story. He sees what's going on in their life. And as a result, that relationship relationship is is, is, uh, pointing towards value and strength and significance and worth that he sees in them, right? So we have these opposite ends of the spectrum. And I put that in front of you today because that's really the focus of this next part of the letter to Ephesians is what do we do when we truly recognize what God has done in Christ Jesus, right? It's not so much recognition that we have towards others, but do we truly recognize what God has done in Christ? Are we vaguely familiar with it? And in so doing, somewhat diminish that relationship, diminish the worth and the value that we ascribe to God, or do we create a lifestyle of effort and thoughtfulness and intentionality because we recognize fully what God has done in Christ Jesus, right? That's the essence of what Paul begins to invite us into today as we begin to look at this introduction. Ultimately, what he is doing is trying to invite us in to come in and behold the wondrous mystery that is Jesus Christ. And so that's our journey this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter one, and we're gonna dive into this to the best of our ability. We started this series last week, <clears throat> and, I, and I told you last week that this is meant to complement uh, the journey in the Lenten devotional. We're, we're really trying to answer the same question, right? It's, is the power of God evident in your life? Are you truly following Jesus? The Lenten devotional takes us through the gospel of Luke to help ask that question. We're using Ephesians to complement that journey, and so a new way to ask that question as we presented this morning is, are we truly recognizing what God has done in Christ Jesus, right? Do we truly have a lifestyle that, that demonstrates that level of recognition? And so Paul continues with this introduction. And so we're gonna read <clears throat> verses three <clears throat> through 14. Last week, we looked at just those opening few verses, establishing this foundation of who this letter is to, who it's from, and setting the tone. But now we get a more elaborate introduction. Let's pick up in verse three. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless and in sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. All right, let me explain to you what we have just read. I love the eloquent language. I love the passion with which Paul writes. But we also just read every English teacher's worst nightmare, nightmare because that was one giant long run-on sentence. Right? That, that we can put punctuation marks in there to the best of our ability. But in the original language, Paul just kind of goes nuts. And so it's really difficult to diagram and break this sentence down to say, okay, here's kind of how it all correlates and works to each other. But we're going to do our best today. But I, I will tell you that this is a passage that we could probably spend months on if we wanted because it's so rich with content. That's not our desire. That's not our intent today. We're going to kind of fly over it at a high level view to seek to understand everything that, that Paul just mentioned here in this introduction and how he's using it to kind of set a tone for the rest of his letter. So, so part of what we see is that this is written in the form of a traditional Jewish blessing. Uh, it's, it's typically referred to as a baraka. And in the way that you know that it's Baraka is the way it begins, it starts with the same uh, opening line every single time, praise be to God, or blessed be to God. Our translation says, praise be to God. This was a common form of prayer. This was a common form of adoration in, amongst Jews at this point in time. And essentially what it was, was a bestowal of good. This, this was an opportunity to acknowledge and recognize the good that God has done. Now what makes this one so different and unique is that over and over again, you see that the central theme is in Christ. Over and over again, in him, in Christ. Christ is the center of Paul's focus. He is the center of God's blessing. This bestowal of good is only experienced, seen, and known through the person of Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, what, what Paul is inviting us into here with this opening introduction is to recognize what God has done in Christ. And this is an incredibly important thing for us to consider. Because when we fail to recognize something, it has dire consequences, right? I can use trivial examples in our everyday life, but biblically speaking, we can point to numerous evidences of what happens when we fail to recognize what God has done in Christ Jesus. We can look in the garden, right? You look at the garden, and when Adam and Eve partake in that rebellion, <clears throat> when they ultimately give in to the temptation, 
to be like God, right? That's the lie that leads them astray. What they're doing is failing to recognize God as God. It is a failure to recognize his authority, a failure to recognize his promises, his goodness, his truth, this relationship. And as a result, what happens? Banishment, death, isolation, separation. You could look at the wilderness, Right here, right on the cusp of this incredible exodus and this portrayal of all these miracles, all these incredible evidences of God's provision, his redemption, his promises, all these things unfolding before them. It doesn't take long before what? They grumble, they complain, and they begin to question, why did he bring us out here? It would have been better to be slaves in Egypt than to die in the wilderness, and they turn to idols. They have a failure to recognize what God had done and what he was doing. And so the result, they didn't get to inherit the promised land. They had to die in the wilderness, right? So you see these consequences. When we fail to recognize what God has done in Christ, it creates separation, it creates distance, it severs the relationship. It becomes an inhibitor of praise, Right? That, that's, that's ultimately what we're seeing here is that Paul is inviting us to praise, but when we fail to recognize what God has done, we have a very different approach to life. T- Tony Evans, I believe, uh, once said that when our complaining is at an all-time high, it typically means our praise is at an all-time low. Right? So, so when we fail to see what God has done, it creates the separation, and we don't live a life of praise. We live a life of focusing on what we don't have rather than on what we have. But what Paul is trying to do is say, no, don't lose sight of what it's done for you. Recognize it, and in that recognition, it will result in and erupt in praise. All right, let me give you another example that to me kind of paints a picture. Let's say you're at a wedding, and, and you go through the whole wedding process. You've seen the ceremony. The, you've gone to the reception place. They've introduced the couple. You've seen the father-daughter dance, mother-the-groom dance. You've seen... Uh, you've had your meal, you've had cake, and now it's time to get out on the dance floor. Now, I know we're all Baptists and none of us dance, apparently, so let's just say this is hypothetical, okay? But let's say we're out there at a wedding and, and you're on the dance floor. What you need is you need a good DJ, right? And a good DJ is gonna play songs that you know, right? Because you can see it all happen on their faces. As soon as they play a song that's unfamiliar, people don't really know how to react. They're kind of casually into it. But as soon as that song begins that everyone knows, right, with the first beat, with the first melody, what happens? People go nuts. Man, they are pumped. They're excited. They scream. They shout. And what do they do? They sing. They shout it out loud. They praise. Do you recognize the song that has been sung for you in Christ Jesus? Is it an unfamiliar tune or as soon as you hear, hear the rhythm, as soon as you hear the beat, as soon as you hear these lyrics, does it cause you to erupt in praise? That's what Paul is trying to do and that's why it's so important. A life that finds separation from God or a life that ends in praise. And so what I want us to do is to take this invitation and do our best to, to get this high level view of how he describes this blessing that has been accomplished for us in Christ. Right, so a couple of elements about this blessing that he establishes at the very first, that, that it's secured in the heavenly realms. Now, now, I just want to quickly address what he means by that, is that when you see this phrase, heavenly realms, he actually uses this on several occasions throughout this letter and in other writings in the New Testament. And so heavenly realms, I want to make sure you understand, is not 
anticipating the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, this is a current reality, a current existence. This is the abode of God and the heavenly beings and the heavenly creatures that are kind of watching this drama unfold, so to speak. And so the point is, is that the blessing that God has described is what has been accomplished for us in Christ is not something we have to wait for. Does that make sense? It's not like, well, well, finally on that day. Now, there are fulfillments of those things that we'll talk about a little bit, but, but the reality of what God has done in Christ, this blessing that is available for us, is, is present here and now, and it is secured in the heavenly realms. It's not going anywhere. It's not temporary. It, it's not fleeting. It is strong. It is stable. It is secure. Now, what has he done? What, what essentially is this blessing? Paul says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Do you believe that? Like, ser- like seriously, do you believe it in your heart of hearts? If I were to ask you this morning, do you feel blessed? What would you say? Well, maybe you'd say yes. What would you think? What would you feel? Here's one of the missteps that I think we can make when we have conversations about being blessed in Christ Jesus is a lot of times we use the word blessed or blessing and we make it circumstantial, right? And so we, we attach it to things that are happening in our life, right? We have good health. Uh, things are going well at work. Things are good at home. I found that front row parking spot today, man. I'm blessed. What can I say? And we attach it to circumstances, which there's nothing wrong with being grateful for good fortune in certain things. But the problem is that when those circumstances change, right? When those circumstances change and we don't have good health, when things aren't good at work, when when struggles are occurring at home and we can't find that parking spot, all of a sudden we don't really feel blessed. And that can, if we're not careful, drastically change our view of God and how He has accomplished certain things for us in Christ. All of a sudden, it makes us wonder and think and question, is God withholding from us? That's not who our God is. That's not the sort of father he is. He doesn't withhold. That's not the sort of father that he desires to be. It's who I am as a dad, right? I mean, have you guys ever been there? Like, I withhold things from my kids all the time. I mean, so Valentine's Day, we got this this box for my dad. It was these... Uh, Tiff Street, you guys ever had that? Those homemade cookies that are delivered on your doorstep, really awesome. So we get this, this box of Tiff Streets for Valentine's Day and it has a ton of cookies in it and this has kind of been a tradition that my dad and my stepmother have done. And so we were excited to get it, but what was different this year is there was a little package of cake balls, okay? Fun fact about me, I hate cake, I love cake balls. I don't know why, can't explain it, but I do. So I saw this little thing of cake balls and I was pumped, man, I was excited. And there were only four of them in there, okay? Now, a good father would sit there and go, you know, part of a family of five, there's only four of these things, I'm going to let everyone else have one and I'll go without. That's what a good father would do. You know what I did? I hid them. That's what I did. <laughs> hid those things, man. I was like, oh, this is, this is mine. You know, I'm going to take these things. So I got three-fourths of the way through before Annabelle found the stash. She was like, what? We had cake balls? And I was like, no, I had cake balls. I don't, you had cookies, you know? And she was like, well, I want the last one, and I was literally kind of debating. I was like, ah, I don't know, you know, but I did finally give it to her because I withhold things, right? There's, there's this impulse that we have. We're like, this is for me. And when we equate blessings to being something that's circumstantial, we can sometimes get that view of God, that he's holding back something, 
that he's rationing his grace, that he's giving us just a little bit at a time, just so much that we need to get through certain seasons. And that's not at all what is said here. He has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. That, that speaks to totality. That speaks to a robust experience of all that God has done in Christ Jesus. Look at some of the complementary language that permeates this text. Riches, lavished. Those are words that don't speak to just a portion of something. They speak to an abundance. Actually, literally, those words mean super abundance. God has excessively blessed us. Do we actually believe that? What that means is, is that when we truly recognize what God has done in Christ Jesus, our life should feel as if it is thriving. And yet, so often, what we really feel more like is that we're just surviving. Why is that? What I would acknowledge for us today is that we all have these seasons, these, these moments, right, that are incredibly difficult, that are filled with hardship and challenges, right? We're, we are worn out because what we encounter is physically and emotionally exhausting. And so there's no doubt we can go through those moments and from a physical and emotional standpoint absolutely feel as if we're just surviving. But what we begin to see and what Paul is trying to point us to is that when you recognize what has been done for you in Christ Jesus and all that he has blessed you with, what you begin to see is that even in the midst of that suffering, even in the midst of that exhaustion, it is achieving something within you. It is leading you to a glory that far outweighs these momentary troubles. And by extension, you are actually thriving. But only if you recognize what's been done for you in Christ Jesus. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, in addition to that, we see that this is all part of God's plan. In fact, if there was kind of a dominant stream or, or theme to this opening passage here, this introduction, it's this, this language of God's plan, right? It's introduced to us early when it says, for he chose us. And then you see this complement of words, predestined, his will, his good pleasure. Over and over again, we have this terminology throughout this passage that speaks to God's predetermining, his preordaining, his predestining this plan. Now, this is an interesting concept for us. It's a lot of times when you have conversations about God preordaining everything or predetermining thing, it kind of leads you to this tension, right? On, on one hand, we start to think about it from a very individualistic standpoint. And we think, okay, well, if God has predetermined everything in my life, then what's the point, <clears throat> right? Like, why pray? Why go on a mission trip? Why, why do any of that if it's all predetermined? And that becomes kind of a, a challenging thought for us to reconcile. And not only that, it becomes equally problematic when we realize that some of the things that we're experiencing in life are actually painful and harmful. And so now God predetermined those things. Is, is he the author behind suffering? Is he the author behind evil and hardship? And so it creates a challenge and a tension that's difficult to reconcile. But on the other end of the spectrum is if we say, well, no, he's, he's not the author of evil. He's not predetermining all those things. Well, now we have to deal with this possibility that maybe he's not in control in this story 
of, of the human drama maybe is up for grabs. And that's equally concerning because now God's not as powerful as we've claimed him to be. He's not as sovereign as we've claimed him to be. And so it creates this tension when we start having these conversations about election and choice and predetermination. Now, those are all good questions, worthy questions. And to be honest, we've addressed them before and, and not just here, but in other settings. So if you want to go into that, um, let me know. I can get you some of that content. We can go grab coffee. My point today is to recognize that while that's a, a common thread for this conversation, when we see this language, that's not what Paul's talking about. Okay, th- this is what's different about what we're seeing. Here's how these terms are being used in this section. Number one, it's not a specific and particular election or choice or predetermination that Paul's talking about. This is not, God knew that on March 8th, 2020, Jeremiah was going to have raisin bran for breakfast, right? This is a general election because what we see is different here is the personal pronouns are not specific. They're not singular. They're plural. For he chose us. Over and over again, it's about a people, right? That's what he's doing. Right? He, is, he is selecting and calling people out. This is what God has done from the very beginning. Not only did he call out Israel, he calls out the church. He, he calls out a people unto himself. And so this particular choosing, this particular election, is calling people out for a particular purpose. He, he wasn't calling out Israel just for their own self-benefit, but so that they could be the vehicle which with, with which he would be known to the nations. Right, that he would be using them for his purposes and for his glory. And that's ultimately what he wants to do with the church, is to call out these people to give them purpose and to give them mission. That's the sort of election that he's pointing to. And, and not only that, it's not the specific details that each of us experience in an everyday life. What he has predetermined before the beginning of time was that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus would be saved. That's what was predetermined. And so what that means for you and me is that Jesus was not plan B. It's not as if God got up there and went, oh man, this is a mess. Uh, what are we gonna do? I know, we'll send Jesus. From the beginning of time, his plan, his intent, his desire would be that glory and salvation and redemption would all culminate in Jesus Christ. That's what he's referring to. That's the specificity. So, so those of us that believe that and understand what Jesus has done, he has called us out into this community that he describes in this passage to be holy and blameless. We get that terminology over and over again. We've talked about it before, right? That's that uncommon life that we are called to live. But not only that, we, we are adopted. That's how this community is formed. I love that language for obvious reasons, right? And even under Roman law, an adopted child had the same rights, benefits, privileges as a natural born child. So Paul's trying to say, listen, Jesus is God's son by nature, right? That, that's God's son. We are his children through adoption. That's how he has called us. That's how he has chosen us. And now we are co-heirs with Christ, but it was all according to his plan. So we get this kind of overarching description of this blessing, right? That it's secured in the heavenly realms, that he has given us every spiritual blessing, that it's all according to God's plan. And then he gives us some specifics along the way as well. And again, every, everything I'm about to mention, this list of some specifics that are included here, we could take months diving into each one of them, but 
but we don't have that kind of time. That's not the intent. We'll hit on these more along the way as we walk through this letter. But let's at least acknowledge some of the things that he references in terms of the specifics of this blessing that we have in Christ. For example, uh, we are redeemed, right? It's that word redemption, which means to be set free, right? It's this, this image of an emancipation of a slave, of a captive, of a prisoner, right? Someone who has actually been released from imprisonment. Now, I know that many of us in here, that's not a direct experience that we can draw upon. Maybe not all of us have had that sort of drastic circumstance of having been imprisoned or being held captive or in bondage or in captivity in any sort of capacity. And so it's maybe difficult imagery for us to connect with. But when we think about it, not from a literal and physical standpoint, but more emotional and and something that's more experiential in terms of today's context, I think many of us could find an example. What, What has held you captive before? Or is holding you captive? Right? Are, you, are you in the chains of loneliness? Are you held captive by grief, by lust, by greed, by addiction? All of us experience some form of bondage because all of it has its root in sin. And what God has done, the way he has blessed us through Christ, he said, I've set you free. How? By the blood. Don't miss that part. This redemption occurs occurs only through the blood of Jesus Christ. We must never lose sight of the cross and its significance, right? We must never demean or diminish its value. The only way we are set free is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not only that, not only are we redeemed, we're forgiven. We find forgiveness of sins. And this word forgiven kind of has the same connotation as redemption, it means to set free, to release, to pardon. Uh, uh, the picture here is to send away. And so you think about sins, be it your sinful nature or past mistakes, God looks at all of that and he sends it away. <laughs> That's what forgiveness is. He, he doesn't even want it near, he casts it aside. And in so doing though, he gives us instructions throughout the New Testament that if this is the forgiveness that you've received and has been offered to you, then it's the same sort of forgiveness you should extend to others, right? The same mercy that you desire is the mercy you give. Forgive others as you want them to forgive you. And so in the same way, when people wrong us, hurt us, the way that we experience God's blessing and his freedom is not to hold grudges and resentment, but to look at other people's mistakes, other people's problems, and forgive them as well to send it aside, to cast it aside, to send it away. So we find redemption, we find forgiveness with all wisdom and understanding the mystery of God's will has been revealed. Wisdom is now available to us. Way to understand wisdom is to see things for what they are. I love that. You know, something happens when we truly begin to recognize what God has done in Christ Jesus, when we truly begin to commit our lives to him and soak in his word and soak in his truth, all of a sudden we see things differently, don't we? Right, you think about the way Paul says it in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Right, something changes. There are all these patterns that the world tries to get us to live by, but when we give our lives to Christ, when we recognize what has been done for us in Christ, we have a renewed mind and we see things differently. I'll give you an example. Self-indulgence. 
right? Is that not a pattern of the world? Every marketing campaign, every, every argument, every debate, every platform is all about what you deserve and what you need, right? This self-gratification, this self-fulfillment, this self-satisfaction where we are ultimately the center of our own universe. And that is what the world says. This is where you're going to find joy. This is where you're going to find fulfillment. What does Jesus say? Deny yourself. Don't, don't pursue it. Deny it. In fact, take up your cross daily. Follow me. And in this, you find actual freedom. It's in the self-denial that you find actual fulfillment. Now, to the world, that seems foolish. To those that are perishing, it says in 1 Corinthians, that seems foolish. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. We see differently. We're given wisdom. That wisdom is complemented with insight. Insight is, is not just knowing that the world is different, seeing that the world is different, but living accordingly. The insight speaks to action. It, it speaks to conduct. I don't just sit back and analyze and critique for my lazy boy at home as I'm watching the news. No, I actually get out and I do things differently. I live and conduct myself in a manner that sees the world as it should be, and I engage accordingly. I love my neighbor. I consider others better than myself. That's wisdom and insight working together. And all of this points to a revealing of God's mystery, right? That one of the things that we can say is a blessing is to recognize that this mystery that for ages past had been kept a secret is now revealed and made known. I love this. This to me carries such excitement and anticipation for what you and I get a chance to see and know and understand. It's like a movie. I've told you, I love movies, right? Um, I I love watching movies. I've always liked watching movies, even when I was a young kid. And so as a result, uh, through my life, I've kind of developed a pet peeve. So like when I'm watching a movie with someone else, one of the things I cannot stand is somebody that asks questions through the movie. Can I get an amen? Right? And if that's you, stop. Right? Just stop. You know, but you know the person that's like, what, what's he doing? Where are they going? What, what happened? Like that, I can't stand that. So somewhere along the way, I must have prayed for patience because uh, God in his infinite wisdom saw fit to give me two children that love to ask questions during movies. So we'll watch family movies and I kid you not, man, it is like never ending questions. Why is he picking up the phone? Why is he getting in the car? What's he eating? And I'm like, oh my gosh, just watch the movie, right? Because you know that at some point in the movie, it's all gonna make sense, right? You hit that climactic moment where the the mystery, so to speak, is revealed and now you understand the, the, the message. Now you understand the intrigue. It all begins to flow from there. So you just have to wait for that moment. That's essentially what we've seen play out in the course of human history. I love that moment in those movies where it all begins to click and make sense. And what we can see by looking through the course of human history is that for generations, people were trying to understand God's will. Why are we being rescued out of Egypt? Why are we wandering in the wilderness? Why do we not have a king? Why are we in exile? Who's going to save us? And over and over again, they'd ask their questions and it was almost as if God was saying, just watch. And the climatic moment and all of it was the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And now the fullness of God's will has been revealed. And that is an incredible blessing for you and me. Right? The, the ultimate answer of God's will and what he is pointing to here is that all of these things, when brought into their fulfillment, everything in this creation, in this universe, in this life, will ultimately be, ultimately be put under Christ. All of it points back to him. Every single bit of it. There is nothing you can experience in this life that will not be subjected to and ultimately give glory to the authority, the praise, and adoration of Jesus Christ. It all points back to him. That's the mystery that God has now revealed. It is an incredible mystery, an incredible blessing that you and I, we get to behold. The question this morning is, do you truly recognize it? There are moments that it feels distant and it feels far off or it feels confusing. And so part of what I think Paul does here to help set the tone is not just speak of this blessing, but give you a way to understand and be assured it never leaves. He says in that kind of final paragraph, when you hear this message and you believe it, there's that theme again, hear Believe when you trust in it with confidence, something happens to you. You're marked with a seal. Right? You you have something imprinted upon you. Now, a seal in this point in time was something that was often put on very important documents, could be be like a legal document, a will, or something, and, and it was impressed in clay or wax, and it had a certain picture, it had a certain emblem. And so the function of a seal was kind of twofold. First and foremost, it helped speak to identity, right? This is who this belongs to. That was a unique seal that pointed to identity. But not only that, it pointed to power. Because depending on whose identity was revealed, the commoner person was very different than the king. You saw a document with the seal of the king. Well, that, that carried authority. That carried power. And so what God is saying here, what Paul is saying is that when you believe this, and you receive it, and you hear it, you are marked. Your identity has changed. You're a new creation. You are one in Christ. And the power that you get to experience is not your own. It's the power of the one true risen king, the king of kings and the lords of lords. Make no mistake, you've been marked. Now, how do you know you've been marked? You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit serves as a deposit for you. Right, that... That word deposit is an actual financial term. It means a first installment, basically a down payment. Right? And what, what Paul is trying to get you to see is that, listen, this experience that you have of the Spirit here, now, in this life is a real thing. But guess what it means? More is coming. Huh. I love that. You don't just have to wait. You get it now, but you also get the assurance that the fullness of this kingdom will Come, you will truly get to inherit and possess all that God has promised. So just keep on standing firm in the faith with an unwavering hope because you know that God's kingdom is coming and will come quickly. We can stand assured as his people when we truly recognize all that God has done in Christ Jesus, that when he returns, he doesn't return as some feeble infant born in a manger, but a king of kings and a lord of lords who rides on a great white horse to come and fully usher in 
all that has been promised to the praise of his glory. What we get to do is anticipate that, to recognize with our lives that that's the hope that drives us through every season, every moment, every day. Do you recognize it? Do you see it for what it is? Do you truly understand all that has been accomplished for you in Christ Jesus? Have you lived a life where maybe it's just vaguely familiar and you consider it from time to time, but you can't really draw upon the shared experiences and the relationships with God that give you the certainty you need? Or has it changed your life? Is it one of those things that day after day you exhibit thoughtfulness and intentionality and a lifestyle that says, I'm going to recognize with every breath what God has done for me in Christ Jesus. For I know he is coming and he is coming soon. And as a result, you live a life of praise. That's my desire, not just for you, but for us as a community. That we would stand here in continual praise because we gather week in and week out and we behold the wondrous mystery that is Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to recognize you for all that you are, for all that you have done, for all that you are going to do. Pray that we would bring you the glory that you so richly deserve. God, that we would be able to truly stand before you with a lifestyle of praise and adoration, shouting from the rooftops with joy and celebration all that you have done in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us fix our eyes on you and give you the praise you so richly deserve. For it's in the strong, sacred, and holy name of Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen and amen.